This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. Should teachers stay neutral about controversial topics in class? Is that even possible? One Chicago teacher thought her district's directive about the Laquan McDonald killing wasn't fair. Plus, the Trump administration wants to redefine gender, and young trans people and their teachers have a whole lot of feelings about that. And teacher effectiveness, it's no longer just about the test scores. What's the best way to evaluate a teacher's work? Those topics and kids these days on this edition of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I used to be in the classroom as an English teacher. Now I'm behind the mic as a radio journalist. I'm joined, as always, by a group of teachers who are going to be coming in and out. It's a kind of a special episode. I do have one hardworking teacher in front of me here in the Kansas City area, and his name is Paul Donovan. Paul, introduce yourself, and what do you teach? Like you, like you said, I'm Paul <laughs> Donovan, and I teach uh, math, the upper-level math in high school. Uh, Lynn Osborne-Simmons is going to be joining us uh, for the next two conversations after this first one. Well, to our first topic, earlier this month, as a Chicago jury was considering whether to convict police officer Jason Van Dyke for the killing of 17-year-old Laquan McDonald, Chicago Public Schools sent a memo to teachers encouraging them to talk about the case with students. And CPS's guidance read, in part, quote, as educators and trusted adults in our students' lives, we are in a unique position to help them understand and process feelings they may have about the shooting, end quote. The memo went on to say that while it may be challenging, teachers should remain neutral about the case in class. And it was this part about staying neutral that did not sit well with Gina Caneva, a writing teacher and librarian at Lindblom Math and Science Academy in Chicago. After Van Dyke was found guilty of second-degree murder, Caneva wrote for Chalkbeat Chicago that CPS's directive that she and other teachers stay neutral about the case had sent a muddled and ultimately self-defeating message. Keneva writes, asking teachers to remain neutral when discussing Laquan McDonald teaches my students something I don't want them ever to learn, that my connections with them and my pursuit of justice for our shared community are not my highest priority. Gina Keneva, now for this first segment, joins No Wrong Answers. She's by phone from Chicago. Gina, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, first of all, I, I think for most of our listeners... Um, you can help us out a bit and just try to give us a sense of how big or salient the killing of Laquan McDonald and the subsequent trial and political controversy around that in Chicago, how big that has been and what effect that has had on your students. Sure. Well, it's kind of been looming over the city for the last, I think, four years, the the news that they're going to have this trial. And the, the trial, a lot of my students were like, I can't believe it took this long for even just the court case to come up. So it's like, you know, they they were just starting to be teenagers when it happened, and now they're almost off to college. So, like, you know, it, it kind of took that long for this to come around. It was very tense. I mean, um, I was at a professional development that day in CPS, and um, they, they asked us all to go home. They canceled all the school events. They were very worried about uh, what would happen if it was a guilty verdict. So I think the, the city was all, like, kind of, almost like holding their breath. Yeah. So, and y- yeah. you kind of talked a little bit about what your students think about it, or at least based on what they've told you. I, but I know several teachers across the city were teaching it. And, and Chicago Public Schools, except for the neutrality <laughs> clause that they want, you know, like the, the stance on neutrality, they did actually provide teachers with several lessons. That if you view the lessons that they 
they did, they were pretty slanted. Um, so it was a kind of just a weird message to get from a district saying, like, stay neutral, but here's all these great supplemental materials to use to talk about it. And when you say slanted, what do you... That they seem slanted towards, like, that this, in fact, was a murder. Yeah. Well, let's get it, to that. Why? You know, what you wrote in Chalpy, Chicago, why were you so bothered with the idea that you, that you personally um, had to stay neutral about the case and the verdict? Why did that bother you so much? Well, one, there was a contradiction of what they were asking us to do. It's, it's very hard to stand. I mean, several students will ask you. They, they also asked us to stay neutral on, like, the elections and stuff like that. And if several students will ask you, who'd you vote for? Like, who'd you do? You know what I mean? And so at those times you could say, like, I don't, I can't, I can't tell you. The district won't, won't allow me to. But the, the this one didn't seem political to me. Like, it just seemed like as a Chicagoan and as a Chicago teacher of African-American and Latinx students, like, to me, that's very different than who did you vote for? And like, what, are you a Republican or a Democrat? Like, that is a very different conversation than here's this piece that we all saw uh, uh, of this young man getting killed in the streets. Many of my students did a, a die, like two or three years ago, did a, um, a die-in where they protested. They, le- they left school. I know it was like three or four hundred of our students, and they just laid outside in, the, um, in front of our school. You know, so they're very active. Our school is very active. They probably have like protests like once a year. So I, I, I don't know. I think it was hard for me to understand that you know, that Chicago public schools were you know it happened in Chicago and they would ask us to say like you know don't you know to stay neutral and, and not to take this as uh, did, to, to kind of equate this politically with something like endorsing a candidate. Right. It seems like very different to me. Well, you you said that you there you did do some writing prompts. Um, mm-hmm. what, how ultimately did you address it in class, and what were the discussions that you had with students? So I really let them talk for most of the time because they wanted to see what they thought because they thought that was important. Um, some of them agreed with each other. They really got into the nuances of the case. Some of them, is, some of the responses were even like, um, I actually don't, like, one of the responses from the students was, I actually don't know enough about this to make a statement. I know it's going around, but, like, I don't have a verified opinion. I mean, I guess just letting them speak in a safe place, in a safe place was um, important for did me you, to hear. Yeah, did you did you yourself end up expressing your opinions about, you know, the, the, the rightness or wrongness of the verdict, what you thought of the case? I talked to them about how I reacted when I heard the verdict, and I shared with them that, you know, this is my opinion, but you don't have to agree with me. Uh, kind of like, you know, when how everybody says they remember where they were at 9-11. I feel like this Chicago, everybody kind of remembers where they were when this verdict came down. And so I talked to them about driving in the car when I heard the verdict and kind of looking around me in the car and seeing people, like, relieved. For Paul and Gina both, I guess as a general principle, is staying politically neutral on hot-button issues or controversial topics, is that something that classroom teachers should strive for, or is it, is it more authentic to kind of let your true colors fly when, when you're able to do that? For me personally, I think it depends on the teacher. Some teachers just get really uncomfortable around anything that is happening outside of their whatever 10 by 10 classroom. Others are cool with talking about it. I talk about these things. I don't, uh, when people, students ask me who I voted for, I told them I had no campaign materials up in my classroom or anything, but 
this is this is part of people's lives. And if students want to know that we're not just robots, then they're not, they're going to know we have opinions. Right, and we, as well. I mean, Paul, you've mentioned before. I mean, how especially around issues of. Um, LGBTQ rights it's come up several times with your students they've asked you like and kind of like what Gina just said they they I mean kids will often just ask you straight up how you feel about something yeah um, and I guess for you the answer is uh, to be authentic in that moment you need to say right. <laughs> how you feel right right and, and do you see anything is, is there is it a fine line or is it does it put you in a dangerous position at all professionally I guess probably and this is also where if you if you set the base ahead of time way ahead of time, with the students, uh, when it comes to something like this, then it can be handled better. So I'll talk with my students about kind of random dumb things sometimes, and I'll make sure both sides get heard. And so then people kind of know that they can say their mind. And so then when something big happened, like last year, that well, the school shooting on Valentine's Day, then that we did have a real conversation about that. I did stop math class, and we did talk about that. And there were several different opinions going on that were opposed, and they all felt comfortable saying those well as a, um, as a as a public service announcement of sorts I, I will point out there are um established legal limits on teacher speech in schools a 2007 u.s appeals court ruling did uphold the firing of a teacher in indiana who said she was fired for expressing to her students her opinions about the iraq war as the court in that case said and i'm quoting from the decision the First Amendment does not entitle primary and secondary teachers when conducting the education of captive audiences, I think they mean students, <laughs> to cover yeah. topics or advocate viewpoints that depart from the curriculum adopted by the school system. That's from a, a, a U.S. appeals court decision in 2007. Are you ever mindful of that in class? I mean, the general sense I get from both of you is that if it feels authentic and students bring it up and students want to know and you have good relationships, you feel comfortable sharing your political opinions, but at the same time, you don't force conversations and you don't also force your own views on students. So are you mindful of, of the real legal limits that you have as teachers in the classroom? I mean, everybody knows that eventually there comes a point where you're just on your own. But if you if you take these topics on, that the decision that you quoted, I think the key word there is advocate. I think teachers can express their opinion fully and legitimately as long as they don't advocate for it. And I, I would agree that the classroom isn't a place to advocate for those. Expressing an opinion, I think, should be, uh, should be fine. Yeah. Um, and I guess back to this Laquan McDonald, Jason Van Dyke example, Gina Caniva. I mean, did you ever see a line between um, just mere expression of your opinion and advocacy for any certain... A viewpoint or outcome? I think the way I couched it was like, this is like my reaction and kind of storytelling. I, you know, I never kind of came out right and was like, yes, it's right or no, it's wrong. Like, and you should believe this. Like, I was not <laughs> like that. I think they probably figured it out anyway, just from like mm-hmm. who I, what they know about me. I, I go back to this, like a lot of the leaders of the civil rights and, and movement and everything, uh, especially the younger like the SNCC and the student, uh, the student movement. I mean, their teachers actually helped them with that. You know, they kind of think about the quote that I used in the article about like neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. And so I think about like if if those teachers would have been like, well, you can't. Let's see both sides of the racism. You know, like, <laughs> like uh, you know, would that have even come about? So I just even the um, like I said, the, the school shooting reference was. Um, it was a teacher that um, helped all the students um, 
start to protest, right, and come to the forefront. He didn't say, like, these are the things you should do, and that's definitely not what I did in my classroom. He was able to give them a space and have them learn from people that have done it. So I think that's more so my do. Well, uh, Gina Keneva, a writing teacher and librarian at Lynn Bloom Math and Science Academy in Chicago, uh, thank you so much for joining us for this segment and, and sharing your opinions about this. Okay, thank you very much for having me. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City's students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. Uh, well, we are back for our second segment, and as promised, we are joined from Chicago by Lynn Osborne Simmons. It's the second time she's been on No Wrong Answers. Then go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us what you teach. Good. I'm Lynn Osborne Simmons. I teach this year chemistry and biology to students with disabilities at Southwest Side Chicago High School. And thank you so much for joining us. It's glad to, we're, we're glad to have you on again, Lynn. Uh, let's get to our second topic. It emerged this week that the Trump administration is considering changing the legal definition of gender. As the New York Times first reported, the Department of Health and Human Services has sent a memo to other agencies saying they should adopt a uniform definition of gender that is, quote, clear and based on science, end quote, and uh, most specifically determined by a person's sex assigned at birth. Such a policy, if enacted, would roll back the broader recognition of gender established under the Obama administration, and the redefining of gender as this proposal aims to do would essentially negate the legal recognition of more than 1.4 million trans people in America. After the Times reported on this, a hashtag won't be erased, quickly developed that sentiment of defiance was echoed in a piece written in Teen Vogue by 18-year-old Sage Grace Dolan Sandino, who identifies as a trans woman. She writes for Teen Vogue, quote, on one level, I feel empowered. The more we are attacked, the stronger our response is. But on another level, being under constant attack creates unnecessary stress and can trigger anxiety and even depression, end quote. Um, we've talked about these issues before on No Wrong Answers. I, I would venture to say few professions deal with the evolving complexities and nuances of gender identity more than teachers, at least directly. Um, so I just wanted to ask uh, Paul and Lynn both, uh, did this news have an impact on your trans students this week, or at least as educators and professionals who possibly deal with trans students, have you been thinking about it? As for me, we had our meeting of the Gay-Straight Alliance this past week, and, and the students brought it up. I don't usually set any agendas for them. They bring it up themselves. And so they brought that up, and we have three trans students uh, in the group. And their reactions were kind of like the, the Vogue article in the sense that I could see in their eyes that they felt kind of trampled down more, and they were, the depression was... Well, it was depression mixed with confusion because they don't know what it means, what the ramifications of this are. But there was also kind of a spark like, F you, now I'm really going to start coming out. And so I can see that they're struggling with both sides of that. Mm. Uh, Lynn, you were going to jump in. You know, there are certain parameters set by Chicago Public Schools as far as like the restroom that's already in place. Probably people, staff have personal issues, but because it was set down by central office, there's not too much that they're saying about it. 
you know, my admin is very um, supportive of these students. We do have admin that is, you know, uh, openly gay. So that supports a lot of students and staff. Sometimes I feel like I do have to redirect certain students with their homophobic remarks. They say that's based on their religion, and I have to tell them people have different values. I personally feel like that might be challenged a little bit. Now I personally feel I have a basis to like keep the hate talk out of my classroom. But if you know this thing in D.C. jumps off, well, then I think I have a little less support in doing things like that because I have experienced hate talk among my my colleagues. So that's a different issue. But yes. Yeah. Paul, it's interesting that you mentioned your students really kind of reflected the this mixture of um, defiance, um, but also real emotional pain that was uh, written about by Sage Grace Dolan Sandino in Teen Vogue. What do you think may come of this? I mean, you you met with the, your students in the Gay Straight Alliance this past week. Is this something that you think ultimately will lead to more, I guess, political energy among your students? Or like you said, this is just another uh, another thing to make them feel marginalized? I think it depends on how long it takes for something to happen and what that thing is. A couple of the students in the group that week were ready to try to start some kind of protest And our president uh, of the club, she rightly said, well, nothing has happened yet. Trump has just talked about doing this. I mean, there's nothing really to uh, concretely protest at this point. So so they agreed that they would give it some time. So they're just sort of kind of watching to see if anything happens. Uh, Lynn, you mentioned that uh, Chicago Public Schools has had a a long policy debate about the bathroom issue, which is something we've actually talked about on No Wrong Answers before. I I don't know Chicago's policy. What what is your policy and and where do you— where do you feel like your school and administration stand on um, gender identity issues? They have said that, you know, and our school is pretty big, so it's easy to establish like uh, transgender bathrooms. Last year, as a student, he identified as a woman, dressed as a woman, and he was allowed to go into the girls' bathroom. It did cause a little bit of controversy, so we always have the bathroom in the nurse's office in the main office they were welcome to use. Many staff felt uncomfortable with the whole thing, but still uh, central office has said that we should establish these bathrooms as much as possible for these transgender students. And since our school is so very big, that was a little bit easier for us to do. I have personally have overheard some like homophobic hate type speech from my colleagues and some of them say, well, they're conservative and it's because of their religions. And students tell me the same thing. And I, I point out to students that, you know, people have different beliefs and you can't force yours and others. So we're not going to speak in a certain way in my classroom. And I do have a little like the a rainbow flag card on my door. And they were given to uh, staff members who want to support these students and you could place it on your door, on your binders or something. Students know they have a safe place. And in my school, is very large, and we all share a classroom. So I put mine on my door, but I also had to put my name on the little card so that the people I share the classroom with will feel comfortable like I'm not designating the whole room all day long. Is Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Paul, you, I guess, kind of a leader at your campus, at least in terms of LGBT identity and rights, so you sponsor or help run the 
the Gay Straight Alliance. Yeah. Um, how do you talk to your students about about gender identity, um, and what is their conception of it? Often, not a lot of students know much about it. A lot of the teachers are uh, are supportive, and if a student wants to go by a name that's different than what they look like, most teachers will uh, will do that. But there hasn't been. Uh, as far as I know, there hasn't been an actual official talk in any class or any assembly about about what. So that this is. is still like really nascent. This is still really developing. Very much so. It's interesting. You talk about your campus and your staff as if like you know it seems pretty pretty tolerant. Like it's pretty open. I mean, pretty cohesive. Maybe that might be going a little too far. But and then we have Lynn who who says at times you know she feels really uncomfortable with some of the things she hears not only from students but also from some of her colleagues. Is that just like an accident or is it does it take like real de- like real staff development and real intentional moves on the parts of teachers and administrators to 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 create that kind of environment at a school? There are plenty of religious um, teachers and Trump supporters and that among the uh, among the staff. But at least from what I hear, they at least give lip service to the idea of fairness. And a lot of it does come from the administration. Shortly before Trump made this announcement, um, in the teacher's lounge, there's a male's restroom and a female restroom. And the principal went and took the male and female signs down. He And he just said, OK, anybody can use any bathroom they want. And he didn't make a big production out of it. Uh, he just said, there's no such thing as male and female bathrooms anymore here in the teacher's lounge. And so it's just sort of those small things that are kind of soaking through the, the culture of the school. But as things soak, some things soak quicker than others. Yeah. Well, let's move to our final topic before we get to headlines and then kids these days. How can you tell if a teacher is effective? In the No Child Left Behind era, the answer to that question has usually been standardized test scores. But the thinking on this is evolving. A new paper published by Northwestern University professor C. Carabo Jackson, published for the education policy journal Education Next, argues that a better way to gauge how effective a teacher is is to look not only at students' test scores, but also at student behavior. Jackson analyzed data from more than 570,000 students in North Carolina between the years 2005 and 2012, and he concludes that student behavior is often much more predictive of future success than their test scores. So, Jackson says, schools should develop teacher evaluation systems that better identify and reward teachers who have the greatest impact on students' behavior instead of being solely or primarily focused on test scores. And before I get a bit more into Jackson's research and methods, I did want to, I did want to ask Paul and, and Lynn uh, just to lay out the boundaries of this discussion. How, if at all, are you evaluated right now? And are student test scores incorporated into that evaluation? Yes, uh, test scores play uh, a part, sometimes a big part in your evaluation. You know, you, you have the two, you have like a formal observation and and administrator comes to your room and they have this list of what they're looking for. But it's all, in my opinion, very, very subjective because, you know, I was told once I'm not adhering to the standards in my unit. I'm not displaying them. I'm, then I'm like, yes, I am. And they're like, yes, no, you're not. And then it, it boiled down to, well, I didn't hear you or the student say the standard out loud. It's like that type of rote type of, uh, you know. So that to me is very subjective. And also uh, I had a friend who after her observation, she had like some of the highest marks I'd ever seen. But then, you know, we're both special ed teachers and 
The kids who were present took that performance task and they are like barely literate and it dropped her down. Her score is so far down. We had to be in like a remediation type of professional development for a year just because their students perform so low. And that's like the nature of their disabilities that they are low performing students. So it's very subjective. It's not fine tuned uh, according to like the need because like our population, diverse learners, really, they're not the ideal test takers. So, well, in his research, uh, C. Carabo Jackson refers a lot to what he calls non-cognitive skills. That is, uh, traits like perseverance, empathy, collaboration. So, uh, the point of his research is to try to suss out students' non-cognitive skills by looking at data like GPA, absences, suspensions, um, and then ultimately high school graduation. Then using this data, he establishes what he calls a behavioral index for each student. And using that, he finds something rather amazing. So a teacher's impact on students' behavioral index is 10 times more predictive of those students ultimately graduating high school than measuring the effect of that teacher's impact on student test scores. Jackson writes, quote, These results confirm an idea that many believe to be true, but that has not been previously documented, that teacher effects on test scores capture only a fraction of their impact on their students. The lion's share of truly excellent teachers, Jackson writes, will not be identified using test scores alone. I wanted to get your reactions, Paul and Lynn, to that, this idea that um, just looking at test scores or looking even primarily at test scores often misses um, the things that teachers do or do well. I think that most teachers would say, well, duh. <laughs> That's something that we've, that we've thought for a long time, and the fact that somebody is now officially somehow noticing this is good. I think the best way maybe to monitor that is ask the students. Give the students a way to uh, evaluate their instructors, take into account the, the respondents, take into account their GPA, their their discipline record and stuff. But they'll be pretty honest um, about what they think of you. Since students see teachers more than anybody else, I think students should have a say also in the evaluation. Yeah. Uh, Lynn, would you want to be evaluated on how your students behave, their so-called non-cognitive skills, traits like perseverance and, and how much empathy they show and how well they collaborate with others? Would you want to be evaluated on, on how your students display those skills? Well, yes and no, uh, because of the range of disabilities. And sometimes the behavior is part of their disability. Some people might walk by my class and say, wait, what? What, what, what just happened there? And that, me, I'm just teaching like because it's normal, but sometimes it's very hard to measure their growth because there are kids who, when they come in September, they can't hardly sit down. And then by March, they're sitting and working with other people or they are, can't remain on task. But then, you know, through, you know, they get used to the routine and they can. So I think it's, yes, uh, it would be good if they could find a way to measure that is non-invasive because a lot of my students, no matter what I tell them, when an admin comes in the room, I can't convince them that they're there to evaluate me. Sometimes they think, they say, well, they just come to see how stupid we are because of their disabilities. So it has to be some way that's uh, non-invasive. Uh, it's, and it's hard because they don't have the, my students don't have the connections with admin because there's like 3,000 of them and only like four administrators. So no, they don't know them. So it has to be a way we can find a way to, uh, to do it without like really just like how do you monitor how is that going to be monitored for my students 
Yeah. Uh, Paul, do you see any other uh, potential problems with evaluating teachers on, on non-cognitive skills? Or I think another term for it is just like soft skills, right? Again, this, right. this idea of empathy or that's the example I keep using. But um, does that present other problems? Because, I mean, you've already kind of said test scores. Yeah, I mean, they can be a, a limited view of a teacher's effectiveness. What are the problems with, with um, assessing based on non-cog skills or soft skills? Well, of course, there's going to be problems with that, too. If I ever, think, if I ever figure out the perfect way to evaluate teachers, I'll just quit and, <laughs> and go on the lecture tour. But I think, and like Lynn was saying, if, you, if, a, if an instructor were to walk in at the wrong time and see things out of context, they could get a completely different, an incomplete view of the situation. And they don't have, there, there needs to be a way to like show over time how these soft skills remain the same or get better or get worse. And I'm not sure how we would yeah. do that. I mean, because that is kind of like the, the promised... The, the promise of test scores is they were supposed to be objective, right? Regardless of whether you, whatever, whatever you saw in class, if at the end of the year a teacher's kids um, got high test scores or at least showed growth uh, uh, on their testing measures, then that was an, a, a supposedly objective way um, of looking at a teacher's performance. But, I mean... There was no buy-in from the students on that, so that was, it never worked from the beginning. Uh, something interesting that I also found out of Jackson's research that I did want to just highlight before we we move on to the headlines and kids these days. Uh, In this data from North Carolina that Jackson looked at, um, the teachers, he found that the teachers who had kids with high test scores um, were not always the same group of teachers who improved their students' behaviors. In other words, you may think that if your teacher, that if you're a teacher, you, you get their kids to achieve high on tests. It's also the same teachers who improve their kids' behaviors. Jackson's research shows, in fact, no. On average, he writes, these types of teachers are not the same. Um, what does that tell you? Veterans of the classroom, what does that tell you? <laughs> I, I think kids look at, for, at school for different reasons. They want to get different things out of them. They want to get something out of different out of my chemistry class than what I want out of it. But most of them, at a school my size, want a sense of belonging, a sense of acceptance. So, yes, they might get that. They might get that. Uh, their behavior might improve in that way where they don't have to act out to get that. And then anything else they get in the curriculum is, like, just okay. But if they have that, they feel that teachers respect them and are there for them, that's what they really, really want. And that's what they want in my opinion, first and foremost, and everything in the curricula, curriculum comes second. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Paul, is it, is it a different set of skills, being able to get your kids to be prepared for a standardized test as opposed to getting them to improve on soft skills? It's, a, it's an entirely different approach for the teacher. If the teacher can somehow make it work, but I, I agree with Lynn again that the sense of belonging really comes first. Uh, and in my experience... The people with with uh, higher test scores also tend to be ones with with better behavior because once if a if a student decides they like you they'll work harder mm-hmm. if they hate you sometimes they'll throw t- standardized tests on purpose just because they hate the teacher. I see a similarity there if the teacher can make that switch themselves between high test scores and and getting along with yep. each other. Well, fascinating stuff, uh, Paul and Lynn. 
hopefully your evaluations go well this year, regardless <laughs> of how you're evaluated. And you keep saying those standards and keep writing them on the board and <laughs> keep checking the boxes. Yep. Uh, well, before we go to kids these days, let's tell you about some other education stories that caught our eye this week. It's time for the headlines. A new study from McGill University in Montreal shows rates of youth violence are substantially lower in countries that have banned corporal punishment than in countries that have not. The study looked at 30 countries that have passed laws banning corporal punishment both at home and at school, compared to 20 countries that have not, and found adolescents' self-reporting rates of getting in fights in the previous 12 months much lower in the countries that had bans. The lead researcher cautioned that the findings, though fairly robust, as he called it, were also just a correlation at this point. In Harris County, Texas, that's where Houston is, just two judges are responsible for more than 20% of all juveniles who have been sent to state prisons in the entire state of Texas. A judicial grievance filed against one of those judges also showed that more than 95% of the juveniles sent to prison out of Harris County are children of color. One attorney told the Houston Chronicle, quote, Houston is still the center of the pipeline to juvenile detention, end quote. And Vian Public Schools near Tulsa, Oklahoma, will allow Cherokee students to wear eagle feathers during graduation ceremonies. That reverses the district's previous position, which had barred use of the feathers. District officials said it went against their policy prohibiting students from altering graduation caps. But Oklahoma's attorney general weighed in, saying that Cherokee students' freedom of religious expression would likely be violated by the ban on eagle feathers. And we should say federal law restricts the possession of eagle feathers, but does give exceptions for Native Americans to use them in spiritual and ceremonial occasions. Those were the headlines of some other education stories that caught our eye recently. Coming up, kids these days. But first, this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control. And what our teachers say are their personal opinions which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard here, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep that conversation going. Look, I want to remind you we have a new website, nowronganswerspodcast.com. You can go there, listen to episodes, and sign up for our weekly newsletter, The Friday Cheat Sheet. It's a pithy, witty summary, I'd like to say, of some of the interesting <laughs> and, and offbeat news connected to education that catches my eye. In the previous week, this past newsletter um, had candy power rankings and uh, musings on teachers staying politically neutral in class, which is a topic we're about to talk about. Uh, you can contribute to each cheat sheet asks for your opinions on some of the things we're going to talk about on the upcoming episode. So go to nowronganswerspodcast.com and sign up today. Also, for listeners in the Kansas City area, No Wrong Answers is hosting a special happy hour Thursday, November 15th from 5 to 7 p.m. at Beer Station. That's on Gregory Boulevard in Kansas City's Waldo neighborhood. It's a chance for our listeners to gather and talk about their work, share stories from the classrooms, or simply just have a beer and relax and get away from lesson planning and grading for a bit. Beer Station will be offering happy hour specials just for our No Wrong Answers crowd. Again, Thursday, November 15th at Beer Station in Kansas City. Come yourself, bring a colleague. You can find out more at No Wrong Answers Facebook page. Now, kids these days... Paul, what are your kids into? Um, in some ways, they're sort of at a 
an, a pause because things are changing so quickly. In May, I heard a lot of students talking about how they were going to be a character from the Black Panther movies for Halloween. But now that it's Halloween, it's already old. So um, they don't. So they're not going to be anything. So <laughs> if, if they do, they, they they're not talking about it. Yeah. But they also they also have rediscovered Michael Myers because of the new Halloween movie and the fact that you don't it only because almost all of them have seen the original old one, but all the rest of them are pretty bad. And since the new one comes directly from the old one, um, the students are able to follow it and get into it without knowing episodes yeah. two through eleven. Yeah, there was a Halloween twenty. Yes, twenty H- years ago. H20, and now, yeah, yeah, H twenty, and now it's. I mean, they don't. The new, the name of the new movie is not Halloween forty. No, it's just Halloween. It's just Halloween again. Yeah, like yeah. why don't they give it a different name? Jamie Lee Curtis already <laughs> confronted Michael Myers and killed him twenty years ago. So now she's doing it again because that one didn't ever happen. All right, so kids are into Halloween again, as they have been for the last four decades. Right, apparently. Right. Okay, uh, Lynn in Chicago. What are your kids into? I think, too, yes, they're interested in Michael Myers, but in my school, I've been noticing a lot of satanic swag. They have the gloves. They have uh, pendants. I think they have something on their book bags, and I've noticed that in a few of my students. And then one teacher said, that's not really a satanic symbol. And the kid's like, yeah, and he's laughing. So, like, now attention is being brought to it. So I think that might be something we'll be seeing on Halloween. Oh, no, yeah. A new satanic scare. <laughs> new satanic scare. Yeah, they've, they've come up. They've, they crop up every once in a while. Yeah. Uh, well, then hopefully everything goes well with that. Um, thanks to our teachers this week, Paul Donovan here in the Kansas City area, Lynn Osborne Simmons in Chicago. Thanks as always to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. Remember, go to our new website, nowronganswerspodcast.com. Sign up for our Friday cheat sheet newsletter. Also, Kansas City teachers. Come to our No Wrong Answers happy hour at Beer Station in the Waldo neighborhood on Thursday, November 15th. You can find out more at our Facebook page. And remember, kids, especially on the week of Halloween, be nice to your teachers. <laughs>